Welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. We're your hosts, Max Frost, Max Tui, and Matt Winesett. Each week, we take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers. Thank you for tuning in. Let's start bantering. Andrew Sullivan is to blogging what Henry Ford was to manufacturing cars. Yet blogging doesn't begin to explain who Andrew Sullivan is or what he's accomplished in his life. So who is Andrew Sullivan? It's hard to say in one sentence, but I will try. Andrew Sullivan is a British-born American, gay, Catholic, anti-Trump, pro-vaping conservative with a diploma from Oxford and a PhD from Harvard who revolutionized blogging and helped define the key political trends of his generation. Andrew's blog attracted over 5 million monthly readers and sometimes drove over half the Atlantic's online traffic when it was housed there. He's also written six books, served as editor of The New Republic, and has made 23 appearances on the show Real Time with Bill Maher more than any other guest. Andrew marches to the beat of his own drum, however, and in 2015, at the height of his popularity... He retired from blogging. He currently writes a weekly column for New York Magazine and occasionally caves to appeals from Mar and others to do television or, fortunately, podcasts. Andrew is a -a once-in-a-generation thinker, and it's impossible to predict where he'll come down on an issue. All you know is that he'll be thoughtful, passionate, and quite often, controversial. Andrew is a little bit like Fallout Boy, even if you don't think you've heard of him. I guarantee you've read or heard his stuff around before. That was Max Tui you just heard. I'm Matt Winesett, and joining us as always again is Max Frost. That is correct, Matt. Thank you. And Andrew Sullivan has a column that comes out every Friday in New York Magazine. If you haven't read it, find it online. It's the best thing I read each week. And without further ado, here is Andrew Sullivan. Governor Haley, thanks for coming it's in. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mr. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Arthur Brooks, welcome back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Ambassador Wolfowitz, pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Miss Peggy Noonan, thank you for coming. Guys, thank you very much for having me. Mr. Bolton, it's an honor for you to be with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. J.D. Vance, welcome. Thank you for having me. Andrew Sullivan, formally welcome on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the shot of Jaeger that I have in front of me and the Diet Coke to chase it, and it's... I couldn't be happier. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we were just we were just uh, chatting, and you started talking about how you love to speak at churches. Well, back in the old marriage in, equality days, yeah. I in that campaign, which was for me about twenty four, about a about a quarter of a century, I used to love going to places where people really didn't agree with me because that's much more interesting. I just don't like audiences that already agree with me. It just makes me feel I want to pick a fight with them somehow, so I find a way to make it interesting. But with the fundamentalists, and these were really hardcore fundamentalists in a church in Idaho, where Peter Hitchens, they also invited to moderate, or to fight against me, to debate me. And at the very beginning of the event, there's about a thousand of these of, of these evangelical Christians. He said, okay, the issue is are you for against marriage, same-sex marriage? And uh, they asked who's for, and two people put up their hands, <laughs> and then who's against about 90. Uh, anyway, That's overwhelming. It. And at the end of the debate, 
they asked the same question and three people put up their hands. <laughs> right. Maybe one person out of around a thousand of these. Uh, Did so, that make it worth it? Uh, it would have made I It was worth it just, just to engage. I, I really enjoy engaging people with whom I disagree. I, it's it's my lifeblood. I, I, you know, back at, when I was a college student at Oxford, I was in the union, the debating union, and I never picked a winning side. I, I always picked a side to debate that had the harder case to make. Actually, I did, I won one. No, no, I lost that one too. Yeah. <laughs> and I, as long as you didn't care, I didn't care whether I lost. The, the, the during do is the interesting thing. And that's why I, I'm so out of place in this culture where no one wants to disagree with anyone. Everyone wants to hide away and, and sort of play with their nipples and talk about why they agree with each other. And well, you we seem disagree to, with everything you stand for. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to pick a lot of fights with the New York Magazine readership, right? I mean, there are more conventionally lefty readership than... Yes. I, I'm, I'm very grateful. It's, it's a bit of a tightrope. And I, I wouldn't say there haven't been tensions, but but I have to say, you know, I'm really grateful. I'm waiting to be cancelled any minute, and that's kind of gives you a little frisson as you write. But I have to say, I have I have two wonderful editors. I've had three wonderful editors there, and I and I'm incredibly grateful to them for letting me write stuff that is actually not completely palatable to their general readership. And I think that says a lot for them. And I, I'm, I'm grateful. I am a bit of a token in that respect, obviously. <laughs> but um, I'm happy to do that. And especially to try, I, I want particularly in some of my more conservative viewpoints to to persuade people and to tell them that it's not this crazy and this is why. And over time, I think you you have some small effect. So you were obviously a titan of blogging, and you were you revolutionized it, especially political blogging. Now, one question we had is, were you drawn to blogging because you just knew that it would blow up, or were you drawn to blogging for more journalistic freedom? Was that the primary? It was the, the primary, the, the latter, yes. The latter. It was the incredible excitement that one got. From writing something and having, I remember the, one of the first posts I wrote, and you could see people responding to it. And the first two responses, one was from North Dakota and one was from New Zealand. Hmm. And at that moment, I'm like, I just reached these people. It would to get a magazine to those two places physically never happened. And yet I had this this freedom, and it was it was I was a bit intoxicated with that freedom. It enabled me in the early days, this is, this is way back in the Bush-Gore campaign, for example, where we used to tie an onion to our belts. It was the fashion of the day. Uh, I, I remember I would... The New York Times then was published online, but once a day, just after midnight or so. And so I would stay up and was able to uh, preemptively attack Maureen Dowd before she got <laughs> And I found this to be to get a, get a head on them and to, to challenge their amazing authority was fun. And that's really why it just was an incredible platform for a writer. There was no editor and there was no publisher, so no one could tell me really what I could and couldn't say. And that, of course, led to me to make a lot of errors uh, that I wouldn't have done, but and blogging is full of errors. It has to be because you're, you're writing in real time and so events haven't fully fleshed out and so you're much more likely to write embarrassing things than if you have a weekly column or a, a, you know, some gig at a, a, a monthly magazine. But no one else was doing it at the time and it seemed, it seemed fun. I, wasn't, I, I can't tell you that I foresaw this becoming 
as massive as it became that I foresaw Twitter and everything, which I regard as in some ways the decadence of the blogging era. But I absolutely was convinced it was great for me and I wanted to write that way. Do you like Twitter? Uh, no. I think it's a horrible place in so many ways. <laughs> do you see anything good about it? No. <laughs> I do, but on the other hand, I, I tell myself never to respond, never to engage. By and large, that's true, although every now and again, like I had a half hour to kill before this, um, I, I kind of couldn't help myself. And that's the trouble with it. It's, 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 it's so easy to toss off, especially when you're interacting with individuals, stuff that is hurtful to them unnecessarily. As I'm not saying about hurting their, you know, damaging their ideological viewpoint and therefore hurting them. That's great. But actually, in any way, <laughs> hurting them in some way personally, indirectly, yeah. I, don't, I don't like. I'm all in favor of the, the big debate takedown of somebody, but I never think of that as a takedown of the human being behind the argument. Uh, and I, that may be a bit of a British sort of tradition, that, you know, you, you fight to death on the floor of the House of Commons, then you go to the Commons bar and you're all chatting each other up and having mm. a good time. And that was definitely the case in the Oxford Union when I, where I was sort of trained to be a debater. Yeah, we, we have a quote somewhere in AEI from Scalia, I think, saying, I attack people. No, no, I'm sorry. He says, I attack ideas. I don't attack people. So maybe it's not all British. But since you mentioned the union, we, we all loved your column last week on Boris Johnson. Oh, thank you. Where you sh we didn't realize that you were there at the same time as him. Did you ever debate him in the union? I don't remember doing so, no. Because when he arrived, I had already finished being president. So I did participate in some of the debates afterwards, but you're kind of an elder statesman then. Yeah. But what I did do was a, there were roughly these political machines in Oxford because you have to be elected. So it's, it's a way in which the British educate their soon-to-be elite in the practicing of politics, uh, in, not just rhetorically, but how you, how you, uh, there were safe seats. There were, I mean, there were safe colleges and not safe colleges. You had to get votes out of one or the other. And there were broad coalitions. I helped Boris get into the machine uh, that was broadly right of center, actually. What was, um, what was Boris like as a college student? And this all is your fault, his political rise, I guess. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, he was the strange thing about Boris is that he's exactly now what he was then. I don't, I Including don't. the hair? Oh, God, yes. The hair, <laughs> the hair has been a staple since Eton. Um, although, if you even look at him as a toddler, he had long yeah. blonde hair. There was kind of hippie kind of. Oh, I think uh, you actually included that in your piece. You had a picture of him on the Eton rugby team, perhaps? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, he was a crazy rugby player, apparently. What were you like in college? Ooh. I don't know. I was... Were you conservative in oh, college? Oh, yes. God, yes. Um, which always sets you apart. Right. But I wasn't the traditional conservative. For example, I was in a whole bunch of plays. I, I, I was an actor. I was best, best known as an actor, really, at, at Oxford. And that became part of the union, too. I was also a debater. So I was always a yeah. performer like that. Were you a Thatcherite? Absolutely. Okay. It was that. So when did that... Because I know now you talk, you did your thesis at Harvard on Michael Oakeshott, yeah. who I think, don't you often contrast well, with the more free market ideologues of... If I'm not mistaken, didn't you intern at Margaret Thatcher's think tank at I did. one point? I did. I wrote a paper for her uh, called Greening the Tories, which is about <laughs> why conservatism needed to co-opt environmentalism, because so much of conservatism is 
about conserving things. And there was a way to frame the argument, not in terms of abstract global ideas, but in the defense of your local neighborhood or your local uh, environment. Uh, and that was a deeply conservative sentiment that was deeply rooted in Britain and that the right had completely forgotten in the Thatcher era. So I wrote it for Thatcher and she completely ignored it. Uh, <laughs> but it was fun. And I'm happy to point back to it because eventually, of course, Cameron came around and rebranded himself as a Green Tory, which is how they, partly how they revived themselves uh, in the, after the Blair era. Um, so I was, I was an unusual union president, but I was also, I got elected sooner than anyone had ever been elected. I was, I was, I was, I, I was basically won the election in the first semester of my second year. So I was pretty meteoric, and I took on the people whose turn it was, who were a year ahead of me, uh, because I wanted to have my entire third year devoted to studying, because I wanted to get a first. And so, anyway, I pulled it off in all sorts of ways. And the story of my election as president of the union would take two hours podcast, so we won't talk about were that. You, it was hugely fun. Were you, a partier, fun. were you a partier in college? Well, you know, the, yes, to some extent. I mean, yes, you couldn't. I mean, first of all, you have a general level of of low-level low alcoholism as a sort of <laughs> norm. That's right. the baseline. Right. So everybody's, We have no idea what you're talking about. Right, right. Everybody's yeah. basically half drunk half the time anyway. <laughs> so, for example, if you wanted to win over Worcester College, they were a block. They all voted the same way. And they were ruggabuggers, what we call ruggabuggers, which were they, they were total jocks. It was the jock college. So here I was, this sort of like this, um, not exactly a jock. But, but, and, <laughs> but there was a key to winning Worcester College. And that was you had to go to the beer cellar every Saturday night. So you, you, they would feel like you were part of them. And if you got face with them, you would get their vote. And the moment I got the entire college's vote was when I actually passed out <laughs> from drinking and had to be carried out of the, <laughs> of the cellar. And then they loved me, and I was, they were all in. Um, and then the other time was uh, finals. You didn't go to Eton or Harrow. No. And yet you're still able to do that. I mean, how did people react to you coming there? I mean, I, I would imagine people get there like Boris did, yeah. whoever else, and they're all immediately in the whole social circle. Yeah. Do you have to fight your way into that? Are they hostile to outsiders coming in? Yes, in a whole bunch of areas, yeah. If you're not part of that world... You're not part of that world. You never will be part of that world. Um, not that I particularly wanted to be part of that world, but there was the sense that this is our institution and you're here. Because you're too smart to ignore. It's a way in which the, the, the working class or middle class people will come up to Oxford really through, through a pretty grueling academic process. And if you got there, especially if you got there like I did and you were already what's called a scholar, you already had because your scores have been better than other people. So you had this kind of, they were insecure about these working middle-class people showing up and outperforming them. And so many of them kind of compensated by trying to be, look more like middle-class people and they would, they would be grungy and they would smoke weed and they would, they didn't realize that that's not what actually <laughs> working middle-class people do. Uh, and that's why Boris was so different because he came and did not attempt to hide the fact that he was from Eton, that he was had this ridiculous accent, <laughs> which he still has. And he kind of made fun of it in a way. And I like that. That's one completely won me over with did, Boris, of all those people. Did he ever think that one day he would become prime minister? Yeah. 
<laughs> we did. I mean, we all thought we were going to be prime minister, and the odds were pretty high, <laughs> given yeah. how many prime ministers think, came think, from the Oxford Union. I, 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 th- I think it was in your article you said the day 20, 2015, when the there was the election when and Cameron won the majority, and Cameron won, and that was bad news for Boris. Yeah, he was desolate. Now, the the day that happened, I was in England visiting a friend. I went out to dinner. And Boris was at the table next to me. Really? Right. Celebrating right. the dinner. I didn't realize it was a bad night until I read that article. He has to officially celebrate it. You know, my, my, and my friend, his parents were like big London bankers, and they took us out to dinner, and they knew him, and they, they said something to him on the way huh. out the door. And then now, a couple of years later, he's obviously like one of the most famous people in the world. But I was yeah. kind of kick out of it reading the article. Because- That's great. That's what people slightly maybe more sophisticated about what was going on said. You know, people who... The, jo- the Osborne Cameron sort of wing of the party were thrilled that they'd finally gotten rid of this guy. Yeah, I remember seeing a tweet too, I think in 2017 when Theresa May lost her majority and someone took a screenshot of Osborne on a news channel just beaming, smirking, <laughs> so happy that she blew it. Yes. I had a British. He's a, he's a very, very, very smart guy. Yeah. But yes, everyone has their, everyone, he has their ambitions and he was kind of foiled. So one question I have is is more biographical it's so you know we've talked about the boris piece and your days at oxford but then you came to america what drew you to america nothing really (laughs) (laughs) except i was a bit of a sort of booty judge back then and that was the next prestigious thing to do if you were if you wanted to be a member of the elite you would go for two years at harvard which would help you come back and you get into a career as a lawyer or maybe at the BBC or or uh, McKinsey or something. <laughs> and so I went just because it seemed like the thing to do. And every other possibility I could postpone two years. So I went expecting to be horrified and to leave. I was a young fogey in many ways. And America represented a kind of crassness that I had educated myself into thinking was a bad thing. And then I arrive and, of course, realize it's a great thing and that <laughs> I felt completely liberated by this country. I felt I wrote, within six weeks, I wrote to my folks, you know, I hate, you know, it's funny to say this, but I really feel like I finally come home. Hmm. This place felt like home to me from the minute I got here. And I think part of the reason is that the other thing that was in the back of my head all the time growing up in England was that is that you have to prove yourself in this Etonian class system. Uh, and there was so much negativity towards people who had ambition, people who were open about it, people who worked hard, people who, I mean, everything you did in England when I was growing up, it has changed. Thank God it has changed a lot. But it was generally I would say, I want to do this. And it would be like, why do you want to do that? Or who do you think you are? Or where are you from? <laughs> <laughs> These questions would come back to you all the time. And over here, I would say, I want to do something. And people would say, yeah, that's great. Sure. The whole American word sure doesn't exist in England <laughs> because you can never be that enthusiastic about saying yes. Uh, so so I, I love this country immediately, and I had also a wonderful time at Harvard. I was incredibly grateful for it. So you came for two years to do a master's and ended up staying to do a PhD. Yeah. First of all, what made you decide to do that? You know, the truth is I thought of Harvard as a an opportunity for me. I mean, I was a very I – th- I was overly sophisticated – kid and had already developed quite an elaborate political philosophy in my head anyway. And I thought, this is an opportunity for you young enough to just entertain all of the possible political philosophies you want to and, and really engage them and see if 
you think you're wrong. And it was a great opportunity to do that. I mean, to be taught everything, uh, every major philosopher from Heidegger, you know, to Aristotle, by people like Harvey Mansfield, for example, who's a god to me. I mean, every week we had an hour together. I mean, it's an incredible privilege in retrospect where we discussed The Republic by Plato. And we got, I think, to book eight by two years. Wow. And he still does that, by the way. My predecessor in my job is now studying with him at Harvard. And she, she came back a year ago and said that they, every, every week they'd go to his house and read Tocqueville together or the Federalist Papers. So still yeah. going strong. He's, he's amazing. I mean, I, I, he did some deal with the devil. Um, he's eternal. <laughs> he looks pretty much like he used to look. And he's taught a lot of American politicians, thinkers, journalists. Yeah, I think yeah. Tom Cotton was a student of his, too. Yeah. I don't know if that is good or bad, in your opinion. Bad. Uh, <laughs> so, <whole little laughs> digression. I actually am curious, though, now that you talk about the classism in, in England and how it's so ossified and there's such a hierarchy. Did the people, since you worked your way into an elite boarding school, or right, maybe not a boarding school, but a prep school before Oxford, right? No, I went into um, what's called a grammar school, what was called a grammar school, which was simply a, what you would call, I think, a selective high school. In other words, it had an IQ mm. test to get in. And so it was... Um, it drew from all backgrounds. Right. It was in a relatively prosperous part of the country, so it was never really, really poor, but there were plenty of – a whole range of people. So you got that. Um, and this really is what made me a conservative in some ways was that had been instituted by the Labor government of 1945 who wanted to give working-class kids a chance to compete with the rich at – college. So they would give them this IQ test, find the smart ones, and get them into the elite. By the 70s, and by the late 60s and 70s, the left had come to the position that, in fact, that was a terrible thing, because it was elitist, and everybody had to go into comprehensive schools that had no selection involved. And while I was at my school, which at the time, in the first year I came there, had more successful candidates for Oxford and Cambridge than any other state school in the country. My class was incredible. I, mean, I had Fat Boy Slim in, in, a, in, a, in a class of 30. It was Fat Boy Slim. And then Keir Starmer, who I don't know whether you know, but is probably the, leader of the next leader of the Labour Party, God willing, mm. uh, who is the chief Brexit spokesman for them. And Andrew, Lord Cooper now, Lord Cooper of Windrush, uh, who, uh, who is the Tories pollster. So that's the kind of school I went to. But were your people... Uh, but here's what happened. Yes. While I was there, the yes. Labour government decided that it would be abolished, that it would force my school to accept people without any selection and also couldn't, it was also all boys and so couldn't be all boys and we were gonna, that we were going to merge us with another school. I just, I was, why would you, here's the school that's the, one of the most successful in the whole country. You are abolishing for the sake of some abstract principle? you you know yeah. i mean and what do you that, that moment i realized what leftism had become which was not a springboard for opportunity for the poor or the middle classes but a way of leveling everybody down and it enraged me and you got to understand also the class system this is why i was a thatcherite she was not she wanted to break this class system and she succeeded a lot and boris is kind of increasingly an anomaly 
And so that's why I was a right winger. I was an individualist and I, I believed in excellence and meritocracy. And I was very proud that I managed to get there. And if, it, if that school had not existed, I would never have, I don't think I would ever have gotten to Oxford. So one question I have is childhood friends, your town, did they have a level of resentment towards the success you had and yes. your distinction? Yeah, a little bit. Was there an element of pride too? What was bigger? It's hard for me to remember, really. But, I mean, take my father. My family just regarded me as a freak. That's all. And that was fine. No one had ever been to college before, and there were no books in the house. But I somehow managed to read all this. And, (laughs) I mean, they encouraged me. Uh, They were were great about that. My mom was always listening to to political news. So I absorbed all that all the time. And we were also a, a kind of sprawling, fractious Irish Catholic family. So so it was always fights and arguments all the time. So I grew up in that 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 sort of let's get at it kind of mood. I mean in those days of course such arguments happened where you barely could see the other person because the cigarette smoke hung in the air so <laughs> thickly in front of you because all my relatives were chain smokers. But it was a good training, in a way, of, of, of arguing. What type of books were you reading at that time, growing up? Uh, I think the first really serious big book I read was, uh, it was Watership Down by Richard Adams. Uh, I've still not read that, but Ross Douthat has been recommending that to help It's a fantastic lately. book. It's a really engrossing book. It's a beautifully done book, and it's set in the countryside that I lived in, so I related to it very much. And I was very much a sort of always out in the woods and always out in the fields. Those are the days when your parents demanded you you be alone out of the house. <laughs> that was a mandatory. It wasn't like they weren't worried about it. They were just like, do what you don't come back until it's dark. Uh, and then and then I discovered Orwell when I was about eleven. And I remember my school they gave they gave you a book prize if you got the highest grades in your score which is in your class which I did and I bought with that money the entire Orwell novels and I read every single novel he'd ever written in, a, in and I was thrilled because it was the first sort of grown-up book that I understood and clearly everything because he's such a brilliant writer and so he became my model as a writer, and then I then I started getting to people like Havel um, and Solzhenitsyn. These are the seventies, remember? This is, uh, and then obsessed with history, and then it went on. Then I was at the grammar school, and I was had all sorts of things to read. But I think I think Watership Down, which my father gave me, was the the. I remember that being a moment. So then, after you came to the U.S. and you did your PhD at Harvard, then you went to work for the New Republic. Yeah, it's it's slightly more complicated than that because I. I went back and forth okay. between the New Republic and the PhD. So I, uh, so I actually left the New Republic, went back for a year to finish my PhD. And then from that, though, you got into the blogging. Is that more or less? No, no, no. I was editor of the New Republic from 91 well, to 96. Yeah, and I don't think people our generation realize as much how big the New Republic was because it's not quite the same institution. No, it's not in, in any way the same institution. It, it was... It was ludicrous that I was editor of it at the age of 26. It, it was the hottest magazine. Wow, wow Max, what are we doing? <laughs> got one more year to get there. <laughs> it, was, it was the hottest magazine in Washington, uh, a political magazine in the country. And it was also very ideologically diverse, actually. Uh, you know, it had... And a crowd hammer on the masthead, I think. Charles was there, Weasel too. I mean, they weren't just on the masthead. He was in the office. 
Fred Barnes was there. Wow. Uh, he was reporting the White House. We needed someone who knew, had simpatico with the Reagan people. But there were also dyed in the wool. There was neoliberals like Mike Kinsley, genius person. There were more traditional lefties like Jeff Morley or John B. Judas, who's another, he's still around and he's, he's great. There was people like Robert Wright who was there at the same time as me. I mean, it was, when you look back, it was an incredible magazine. That, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that as a function of me, I inherited that. But, uh, and my job was to kind of keep the show on the road. And, but I also wanted to kind of get it to be less boring and less stuffy, which I thought it was, and a little too earnest. I still had my English sort of bright heady frivolity about me. And so I wanted to have more humor in the magazine. I want to have more coverage of cultural politics, which never... So I got... I, I kind of introduced Camille Paglia to the world there. And then I published Charles Murray, uh, which, which was stigmatized me for... It's controversial, to say the least. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, and this was, this was a very frenzied part of my life, I was in a disaster zone. I mean, everybody I knew was sick or dying. And, I mean, I dated four guys who died. Wow. And my best friend died at 31 while I was editor of the New Republic. So it was, it was terrifying. And it was also while I was editor of the New Republic, I found out I, was going to, I thought I was going to die. So you had this extraordinary sense of now or never about things. Which is why I decided to take one of the summers off when I was editor to write Virtually Normal. Because I thought that would be it. I would, if, I, if I was, was going to be a stiffy by the age of 30, I intended to leave something behind that I thought could work. So I wrote this book uh, with a real sense of this is it. And I tried to make the argument as airtight as I could. And it really was an attack on conventional gay politics, to some extent gay culture, which also was a hugely controversial and difficult thing for me. And I wanted to make the case that, in fact, it wasn't crazy to believe marriage was a central part of civil rights. It was, it was, it's amazing that people hadn't brought it up before properly. It, they had, actually, in the past, before the late 60s. Uh, before the new left took over the gay rights movement, when the gay rights movement was a, a much more mainstream phenomenon in the 50s and, and, and early 60s. And so I thought, well, let's put it out there. Maybe it's a, it's a, it'll be a little bottle in the ocean and it'll turn up on some shore one day and people will look at it and read, I realize I'm right. Because I really thought the arguments were correct. That's why I love debating people, because I thought I had the better arguments. And, all, and I had an answer to every single objection they had. Can you summarize the argument just briefly? No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it basically, it was... Marriage is so fundamental to as people forget it because it's so obvious. Everyone has the right to marry, and but gay people had no ability to legitimize and uh, stabilize their own relationships. And so you have both a liberal case, which is that this is simply a matter of equality, and the right to marry is so fundamental. When you actually read the cases that go back, it's incredibly fundamental to the notion of citizenship in this country. And also I could say to conservatives, look, why are you against this? Uh, I remember I was, I, had a, I was on with Pat Buchanan on Crossfire back in those days. And I remember, Pat, why don't you want to impose your values on me? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> why am I the only person you don't want to get married? Yeah. And 
that was a good point, you know, and to, and to make for, the point that— Good enough for that one guy in the Idaho church, at least. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Got one of them. We, look, over, what is it, 15 years, 20 years of constant debate and argument, we persuaded a third of the American public. We, we took the third that were ambivalent about marriage equality or kind of iffy, and we moved them from that camp to pro-marriage equality in about 15 to 20 years through— civil argument through what the left now calls respectability politics, but really through logic and through engagement and through asking people to have the courage to talk to their own families about this if they were gay and, and for them to be human again. I mean, it was really, it's hard for you guys to even imagine the way people thought about gay people back in the 80s, uh, 70s. We really were freaks. And for a while, the left kind of the new left, I think, uh, used this in that way. And, and, and in order to argue for a fundamental transformation of the entire culture. And I didn't think that represented most gay people. I knew it didn't because I knew them. Like, once I discovered who gay people actually were, you know, when I discovered all those budding Pete Buttigieg's out there, I was like, this is a con. They've completely distorted what gay people are. And, and in fact, if I uh, and everybody's too scared to point out that they're lying about who we are. And so that was that was a I felt both sincere about that and also kind of had fun because I like debating. Hmm. So I'm sorry. I've just you've written too many interesting articles on transgenderism for me to not bring it up. I've just got to sure. do it here. And, <laughs> and my question is, my question is, a lot of people draw the parallel between the transgender rights movement now and the gay rights movement that you were on the front lines of fighting. Is this parallel fair? Is it accurate? And what does it miss? I think within the gay world and a little bit around it, there's always there've been two, you know, two strains of thought. One is that we're regular human beings that need to be integrated into the culture and society and get on with our lives. And the other, which is that we are the agents of overturning the existing order and indeed the existing structures entirely. In fact, we're critical to it. We can queer everything. When I was a nice Catholic boy, I wasn't <laughs> up for that. You know, I read Foucault and I was like, well, you know, it feels like he's just a, he's a Thomist at war with himself. That's, what, that's how he came across to me in a strange kind of way. So with the trans movement, there is, I think, a very commonsensical and straightforward defense of transgender equality, which is that a tiny number of people, and it is very small, I believe genuinely have a conflict between their brains and their bodies, which is that they really are, say, a female in their brain, but, will, but feel like their body is male. And so they have this incredibly difficult, sometimes torturous life trying to reconcile this. And some people reconcile it by transitioning. I have no problem with people. And in fact, I admire many people who've gone through the struggle. And I think they should be protected, if other people are, from basic discrimination, because uh, it, it's a violation of their dignity and their worth. So I I've always considered myself a very strong advocate for transgender rights. But what I don't believe is that gender is a social construction and that gender is a more important identifier than sex. If by sex you mean biology and if gender you mean how you express that biology, then, first of all, I'm happy with anybody expressing being male or female, whatever way they wish. And in fact, 
the more the merrier. I do think that there were constrictive ideas of what men could and should do that I'm happy that have seen, have been amended a little bit. It gives people a little bit more oxygen in the atmosphere to breathe. And that's altogether a good thing. But the notion that, in fact, we exist in, in a sort of Foucauldian universe in which power structures operate, and these power structures construct even your gender, and that, therefore, if you, if you can disarm those structures, you can kind of liberate yourself from gender altogether, to be not true by my experience or by my observation of everything I'd ever seen in my life, including all the transgender people that I knew and were friends with. And I also saw that if gender trumps sex, then, in, then homosexuals cease to exist. We are same-sex attracted, not same-gender attracted. Now, in vast majority of cases, it's the same, obviously, because most people's gender and sex match up pretty, pretty well. But it isn't, it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a very important distinction. That, and in fact, it was critical to the gay rights movement to say that we're gay men, which means that we are men as well as being gay, that we were reclaiming, we were, we were, we were fighting against the notion that we were therefore somehow female. We wanted to own our own gender as men. And that's complicated. But I, so what's happened is I, basically that I think if you look at the history of the gay rights movement, you'll see, as I said earlier, an incredible and incredibly brave movement in the 40s and 50s and early 60s with people like Frank Kameny here was marching outside the White House in a suit and tie who'd been fired during the Lavender Scare and, and the witch hunt. And the Mattachine Society, Daughters of Bilitis, these amazing magazines which I discovered through the, the fog in the New York Public Library when I was researching some of this stuff. And uh, uh, then it was, was subsumed in the revolution, cultural revolution of the late 60s. And so because it had something to do with sex, it then became part of the sexual revolution and also part of the more general movement. And because gay people had been ostracized and demeaned by the right, that was the only place they had to actually talk about themselves. But then I think in the late 80s, early 90s, a bunch of us, there was a, a crew of us who thought this was wrong. And especially since we, we were experiencing a world where having a right to be with your boyfriend while he's dying in a hospital room is a very important right. The, the fact that someone who had been with someone for like 10 years, as soon as they got into hospital, that the only next of kin were allowed. And so they were literally shut out from their spouse's last moments in many cases. And then thrown out of their apartments, <laughs> cut out from the funeral, everything. Because the families were often hostile to these relationships. Well, that stuff definitely was integral to the to the push to say, no, we deserve these absolute rights like heterosexuals do. And what we wanted to emphasize is not how different we were, but how much alike we had with heterosexuals, how much in common we had. Love, death, <laughs> emotions, minds that are as varied as anybody else's minds. And so those, it's, a, it's a weird kind of thing. Out of AIDS came a, a more mainstream gay movement that fought for the military, first of all. My first boyfriend was in the military. And that sort of got me even more alert to this. But secondly, marriage, which, however, was regarded as bizarre 
at the time. I mean, seriously, it really was, it's hard to explain to you two, but people, people laughed at you. So we came along then, and that happened. And then, of course, we succeeded. We got military integration. We got marriage rights. Most of the country where the gay population is, we got even employment discrimination rights because the states did it. And so those of us who were <clears throat> more mainstream kind of dropped out. And so the far left took it over again. So what saw you- trans issues as a way to – they also needed the trans issue to get money, to keep the money flowing in because they needed ever new – Grievances. Yeah, the the vanguard elite always needs another power structure to topple. But what, so, what do you make of the some of the religious freedom laws, like in Indiana, and you hear about these cases of bakers refusing to bake a cake for a wedding? How how, do, how does someone with more conservative sensibilities like you view a situation like that? I believe that religions should have autonomy, and that when if if their doctrines are not prima facie invented or created out of hostility to a group or other. So we're not talking about the black Israelites, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're talking about the Catholic Church or Islam or any of the other religions, the strictures against uh, same-sex relationships are thousands of years old. I disagree with them. I wanna, I've, I've had endless talks in the church about this. But the First Amendment is about, at least it seems to me, about the importance of religion and the sanctity of your own beliefs and the inability of the state to intervene and dictate to you how you practice your religion. I mean, this is partly who, this is who founded this country. It's the religious nuts who were even too nutty for the 16th century in England showed up here. And of course, that was part of their ethic. And but the Enlightenment helped, of course. So that to me is essential. So I would, I support this um, this bill in the Congress, actually, which is a rival to the Equality Act, which does the deal we did in Utah, actually, which is there was a, a, the gay rights movement and the LDS church there, the Mormon church, got together and said, let's do a deal. Let's have non-discrimination laws for gays in employment housing, blah, blah, blah. But let's also sanctify the religious freedom of the Mormon church to say whatever it wants and, and to allow them to discriminate in their own institutions uh, if they so wish. Uh, I don't mean being horrible to gay people. I mean, I mean just upholding their own strict scriptures and not having people who defy those scriptures in their own churches uh, and temples. So that struck me as a really win-win situation. Let's defend religious freedom and defend gay. It can be done. Mm-hmm. It really can. And to do this nationally would be fantastic, I think, because we could get a bill through the Congress that that both got federal protections for gay people and trans people, and that also defended the right of churches, synagogues, mosques, and any other religious organization to do as they please. The gay groups hate it. The religious right hate it because each of them, it supports something that each of them disagrees, but that's precisely why it's a good compromise. Mm. So that's, that's where our efforts are going to be <laughs> next, I think. And, but my goal was always to shut the gay movement down, to end it. I mean, to get some certain things done and then end it, like have a big party and go home and get on with your lives. That was the goal for me. The goal of being political in this was to, it was to be unpolitical, that you just resolve this political issue because you are disenfranchised and you are marginalized formally under the law. And once you do that, let's go and be who we are and do what we want to do and get on with our lives. And let's us, let us create a, a gay subculture if we want to, a, a whole variety of, of, of ways. So... 
that's exactly where I still am. But this is a piece of business that needs to be finished, I think. And let's get it resolved, but also get it resolved so that religious people do not feel and should never feel intimidated or forced to do anything they don't want to do. Andrew, but when you talk about kind of moving on, having the big party and saying, let's, you know, great, we won. What if someone says the civil rights movement for African-Americans similarly had major triumphs, Civil Rights Act, you know, abolishing Jim Crow, and you go down the line, but it's... It, it arguably started in the 1860s and didn't end until the 1960s. Right, but no, but the point is they did clear all that away, but it's still in some ways active because now it's let's talk about how these problems still manifest themselves in criminal justice and kind of on peripheries and in education and in housing policies, and you go down the line. So I'm wondering if... If you think there's maybe it's not the battle still going on, but some skirmishes and it still needs organization, the gay rights movement, because there are some relevant fights like the Baker one, for example. I, I, if someone doesn't want to bake me a cake for my wedding because of his religious, mm -hmm. why, why would I want to force him? I just go down the street. Why? Why would for God's sake, what's the problem here? This is an imagined crisis. Uh, it's like they say they have the, the, the forest denies them. You know, you can't find a gay florist. Like, really? That's that hard? I mean, seriously? I just think that's being an asshole. I, I just, I just think it's being an asshole. Just as some religious right people are horrible, and the gay people, and they're being assholes too. The it's a very complicated analogy with the Black Civil Rights Movement because many other factors are involved there: economics, right, legacy. Right, right, the right. key thing to remember about gay people is that we're born fresh with every generation. We are randomly distributed across every class, mm. every race, mm. every region. There is nowhere we aren't, and we're already there. Many gay people are already there. Do you think gay people only have power now in Washington? It's always been run by a bunch of, of gays. I mean, gays have always been a very important part of the city. Jamie Kirchig is writing a, a great book on that right now. But gays, for some reason, have always been interested in politics. It's kind of a, a lot of us. And so we already wielded a huge amount of power. We were too scared to use it in our own defense. And what we needed was simply get through the psychological barrier of not being ashamed of ourselves. Once we did that, we already had the power. And then it's over. And you have to redefine the gay issue along lines of, say, progressive issues about general inequality. So you have to go to race or class. But this is the community that has, is, is sort of the least likely to be able to be homogenized that way. And the other good thing is that it's proof that those 20 years, and that's why I'm, I'm still an optimist about America, that if you do make your case log logically and calmly, then you do have better arguments and you just do it forever. You just repeat them endlessly. You engage everyone until you're absolutely bored out of your mind. Then you'll win. That's why when I come, come across some of these young gay activists and I'm like, well, explain what it means to be trans. Why should I do that? That's emotional labor that you need to go and read up on this before you even talk to me. I'm like, if we had that attitude in 1988, <laughs> no one would have given a <laughs> And it's, 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 it's so psychologically stunted to feel that way. Does, does Trump challenge that at all? The fact that Trump could become president making these arguments that really didn't hold up to scrutiny at all? It does qualify the argument, but it doesn't mean that other things don't work politically. It just, it just implies that this still works as an avenue for moderate change and that there is still reason out there. And that if you appeal to people's 
reason in a, in a good-natured way, in a good-faith way, then you can succeed. I, I, I just use it a model for how, in fact, polarization does not have to happen if we are prepared to engage. I think Trump happened because th- this country had been changed dramatically in ways that a lot of people felt they'd had no choice in, whether that was this fr- trade or immigration. <clears throat> and whenever they complained about it, were dismissed or demonized. So when Hillary did the deplorable comment, it's what they had been hearing their entire lives. And some of them are deplorable. There are deplorable people all over the place. Mm-hmm. But I don't think these people are inherently somehow more deplorable than anybody else simply because they want to have a say in the way their country is run. I, I really don't. And, and I think it's to the shame of the conservative movement that it hadn't previously addressed some of this stuff. The idea that candidates were going into the, into the 2016 elections defending the Iraq war, I mean, which they all were. And then people were shocked when Trump came out and said... Yeah, and said, you know, this is, this is this thing. Brother, it was a disaster yeah. for the country, which he was, that we, the, the, the atmosphere cleared. Now, the people are going to be forever grateful to that person, unfortunately, even though he's a charlatan, a crook, gamma, a liar, and mentally unwell. That's not even... But, I mean, Rand Paul attacked the Iraq war a lot, and Rand Paul has some pretty heterodox opinions on other issues. So what do you think it was about Trump himself that made him so appealing? And I think you actually, if I'm not mistaken, you took him more seriously early on than most other commentators did. Yeah. I, I thought he was going to win from almost the moment he announced, partly because I knew Clinton would be the candidate, the other candidate, and uh, was terrified of this and spent nine months <laughs> jumping up and down saying, <laughs> you got it. This is bad. He's bad. I mean, it's just this is, this is horrifying. This is, this is everything that a liberal democracy needs to guard against. And this is partly why I see the good thing that Boris Johnson is doing, which is that he's addressing these questions, but from the existing institutions. So he's not hijacking the Conservative Party. He's, he's always been a member of the Conservative Party. And his attempt for the Conservative Party to actually address the questions of immigration and trade were exactly what a ruling party should do and exactly what the Republican Party failed to do. Equally, Boris has adjusted economics to account for, uh, and this is what was so bizarre, to account for the success of Reagan Thatcher. Look, every era has its beginning and end, and every change will eventually, and this is a great Tory insight in a way, every change will come undone, because especially if it's successful. Because then the things it was addressing have ceased to be questions. And new things will emerge... I mean, this is an Okshatian conservative. New things will constantly emerge that you have to tackle and deal with. You should always be alive to those. And the worst thing to do is be in hoc to an abstract ideology that prevents you from seeing the small changes that are necessary that will that need to address emergent problems. Is that how uh, the GOP was in America, do you think, to attach to this abstract yes. ideology? Yes. Pa- past when, so for example... I think it was great to cut taxes, to simplify them, to allow the free market much greater sway in the country, to unleash the kind of potential that Thatcher and Reagan did unleash. But I think after a while, if you see that that process through things you didn't quite anticipate, like globalized trade, like China in the WTO, things NAFTA that we didn't really see the long-term consequences of, and you watch a country become so stratified economically that so much of the wealth is held by so few, and that therefore capitalism itself is being 
delegitimized by this process because most people will see it as rigged and unfair, and it is rigged and unfair, and it needs adjusting. And conservatives, in order to defend capitalism and liberal democracy, need to reform capitalism. And they haven't done that. But Trump, of course, he's been completely ineffective in any of these things. But he did, he did say those things are discussable, and they weren't. And a lot of people were grateful for that. And I think they're right to be, but, but the, 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 it's complicated. You know, you, you, those, those issues can be right. The needs they're addressing can be valid, but the person who's actually doing it can be such a maniac or a demagogue of his capacity and also a demagogue with apparently absolutely no boundaries of what he is prepared to say, uh, regardless of reality, that... If he actually succeeded in getting an entire political party under his thumb, uh, we were we were we were no longer a sort of functioning liberal democracy. Andrew, don't you think impeachment's a hard sell to to Trump supporters, yeah. especially those in the Midwest? Yeah, like you can just imagine Adam Schiff, who reeks of the deep state and you know washington elites that those people detest and he's going to come with an elevator pitch for impeachment that's not that terrific i mean i'm you know pretty sold but i mean, I am sold but it's not like okay he suspended military aid to an ally to gain political dirt on a rival and on the one hand yeah that's legitimate maybe there's obstruction for justice but that elevator pitch to a steel worker in ohio has been laid off three times in the last seven years and you're hearing this from adam schiff What's going to happen? I know you support. That's why we need Republicans to go out there and say, whatever you think and whatever the issues, this 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 person has violated and broken core constitutional duties and abused his power in so many consistent ways that that he has to be held to account, or we will be legitimizing this kind of executive abuse of power for the indefinite future. And that's always the question. You know, it is, there's a cost of doing something. There's a cost of not doing something. And I agree with you. I, I mean, you're not, yeah. you're absolutely right. It is a hard sell, a very hard sell in terms of getting people to pay attention and getting people to understand why this is great, getting, to, getting people who, for whom, to whom this guy is a, close to an icon, a cult figure, to say, you know, he actually has to suffer the worst punishment we can inflict. Do you travel outside of D.C. a lot? Like, a certain amount, yes. Well, how do people... I'm just curious, when you go out to Middle America, wherever you may go... I'm not going out to Middle America coming across random people and asking them questions. <laughs> That's what you mean, no. He's, he's I'm, 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 office I'm, hours at an, at an IHOP in Pennsylvania. Your whole... Uh, Dr. Andrew. You know, your political... <laughs> if you get in a political debate with D.C. in D.C. with somebody where people are in tune to this kind of stuff, I'm just wondering how... Like I would, I would guess your the readership for your New York Magazine column is overwhelmingly urban. Yeah, people. I'm I just, mean, I'm just wondering how I people. Wish react to I wish they were more the responsive. I I can't control what people choose to read or observe. Yeah. Um, I can just say what I think is true, and he terrifies me. And the idea of him being reelected uh, really frightens me. I do think he's a dangerous figure. I do think that he's violated the Constitution in very obvious and profound ways. And I do think he's probably the most brilliant demagogue since William Jennings Bryan in this country, or Father Coughlin. Uh, that, the, that the power of demagoguery, which, is, which was 
the founders were obsessed with and very concerned about is represented by him in almost perfect form. I mean, he is a brilliant demagogue. Demagogues love crowds and masses and they love cults and they love to be worshipped. And they're ultimately very dangerous to, to limited government and to constitutional norms. And I'm a conservative. I, the core is defense of the Constitution. That's core. That's, we prevent. If you want to change it, get yourself an amendment. <laughs> and I do think also that it has been a terrible mistake uh, in the conservative intelligentsia in many ways to have adopted since Watergate this idea that um, the presidency is, 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 needs to be empowered more <laughs> under the Constitution than it has before. I think that the, the executive, certainly since the beginning of the last century and certainly since the Cold War, has acquired powers the founders would never have countenanced. And since 9-11, the powers of surveillance and control that the founders, again, would have regarded as a form of tyranny. And wanting this unitary executive to have more power than the judiciary or the legislature is, I think, profoundly wrong. I'm with George Will on this, that that these branches are co-equal in the American system. We don't have a king or a queen, uh, and each of them should be in equilibrium. And certainly of the things that one doesn't want to be out of control is, is the executive branch. And the judiciary, you could say also to some extent, and I do think, again, it's, it's complicated, isn't it? Because I'm, I, I think the liberal court in the 60s and 70s all but created the modern conservative movement in many ways and overreached massively. And the only solace I have from the current moment is that there will be, I would hope there would be judges who would be more circumspect about executive power. I fear, however, that the unitary executive notion and deference to the executive branch is now orthodoxy amongst all those judges, which means that if all those judges will never attack directly the executive's abuse of power, uh, then they're disappeared too as a, as a check on him. And you, all you've then got is the House. Isn't the main issue, though, that the legislature just seems to have abdicated a lot of responsibility? I mean, they, they don't seem to want to wield the power. They're completely complicit in it. They're and wimps. Both, both parties, I think. Both parties, absolutely. The idea, I mean, again, the founders just assumed the Senate wouldn't give away their entire war-making powers. I mean, why would they do that? They're the Senate. They can, they can declare war or peace. They actually have control over trade. Why on earth would, we, would they have thrown this power they held to the executive branch? The 17th Amendment, Andrew, I think. This was before the Senate was elected by the people, and now they're just responsive and they don't want to take a side right, on Andrew, controversial uh, issues. Andrew, yeah, well, you might get me, look, might get me to agree on that. That would make me a total reaction. Look, <laughs> look, do you fear – you had an excellent – I don't know if you guys read it. The one where you called Cory Booker a well-intentioned cyborg where you just decimated <laughs> – the Democratic yeah, I just, it was that an was a fun day. I just you, decided I'm just gonna like you know, it was be amazing. Silly. It was amazing. I'm saying, aren't you <laughs> freaking out though? They just had the new Quinnipiac today that has out. Biden ahead. I mean, he is slurring his words at events. Can you imagine a- this? Gets to what I want. So, who is the Okshatian candidate of modern or uh conservative change? or translate? Mo- what, what is yeah, who's the candidate of <laughs> modest change? That well, it was, those, Obama. You know, it was, it was Obama, <laughs> it was Obama, uh, which and the failure to see that by the right, I think, is to their eternal detriment. Hmm. Uh, they could have moved so much forward 
gotten a lot of what they wanted to. This was a black Democrat who would not have wanted anything more than to get a deal uh, with the Senate and with the Congress, with the Republicans. I know that. Uh, now, they all acted incredibly upset at the beginning because he didn't want to basically say, OK, what do you want to do in healthcare? Yeah. But that's pathetic. And also the possibility of the Republicans supporting a black president would have been just so important to the country, would have really, this was an important moment in the, the history of this country. And they could only see it within this horribly narrow partisan basis and took the maximally obstructionist view. The idea that you have the first black president uh, who is on a, is elected in the middle of the worst economic crisis since the 30s. I mean, poor guy, he, he didn't, he was thrown into, I mean, he was, there were, I think, 40,000 jobs a month just disappearing, mm-hmm. maybe 70,000. And the stock market, the globe, I mean, the guy, I felt, genuinely felt, we should, at this moment in time at least, we should, we should help him. And when he got zero votes for a stimulus package from the GOP, it was just... Again, if I never wanted to believe that the Republican Party is, is congenitally racist, and I don't think it is. But the response to Obama, I think, was completely inexplicable, unless you put that in. I can't. He was pretty far left, though. I don't think he agrees. Barack Obama. No, I don't think he was in the slide. You name one subject on which he was far left. Go on, name it. Well, I'll, I'll <laughs> tell you, and this is a knee-jerk issue for Republicans and an often-sided one. He was one of two senators to support partial birth abortion. That's a big one. And that's like such a gut, gut visceral one. It is a gut visceral and I think one. I th- and you know what? Uh, I think that issue is horribly distorted and misunderstood. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And the reason it's misunderstood is because it happens quite rarely and almost always happens when the mother is determined. Is. No, who's always wanted to have a baby who's always had problems with pregnancy and who develop in the very last stages of pregnancy a, a kid, a, a, a child that has grotesque deformities, whose brain is growing outside the skull, questions that this child will die in agony on the delivery table or not. And look, those are not casual uh, uh, tossing away of human life. In some ways, if you actually think about what the women and the men, the fathers too, have to go through in that process, uh, the decisions they have to make, I actually think that's the most defensible position. It's much more defensible than just flushing out a future life for convenience at some point. And and again, it's easy to it's easy, and I understand it because it's it's horrifying, and you feel it's awful. And you're right to do that. Every moral instinct feels revulsion at this. And I once wrote a piece exactly saying that. And then, because I was on my blog, I got swamped with women come, just saying, you're wrong on this. Let me tell you my story. Hmm. And uh, we ran dozens of these extraordinary pieces from people who were anonymous, of course, because uh, the blog, the dish gave them anonymity, uh, that explained this thing and we actually put it together into a little ebook called It's So Personal. And to be honest with you, my mind was changed by listening to their stories. And I still I, I still have issues with it, but I can I think that is understandable. Yeah, no, and I'm not, you know, 
I'm just saying that yeah, that's what down, other dude. people. I'm saying <laughs> the one you wanted what, to destroy right, was right I'm here. I'm saying that's what other people would say. Yeah, but Tui, I'm, I'm going to turn your I'm going to turn your mic off too because you're. Uh, uh, well, I'm sorry. It's called passion. corpse. Well, you're dropping Okshodi, Okshadi, and whatever you said. I'm trying to tell you how America feels. Okay, and and I think here's another one. I understand the feeling, but but the feeling should be subjected to reason. But you know, I agree. And other feelings. But okay, so here's another one, and and it's like okay. okay, it's not a huge material policy difference, but at the end of the day, it signals in flashing bright letters: liberal, 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 not for the people, which is the contraception mandate on the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare, yeah. and that was just you go to religious institutions across the country, sometimes oh, little sisters of the poor who are now required to provide contraceptives for their employees. And that's just another one who was like, to be the unifier, should we do that? And I, I just think it's a hard sell to Republicans. I honestly think that, that Obama himself was not that keen on that. That was pressure from the party or advisors? Yeah, I think, yeah. I think that was less his personal view. I don't want to exculpate him from that, uh-huh. but but look, the Republican Party had destroyed the economy <laughs> and lost a war. This guy it's not a good resume, not a great resume, and this guy is elected in an up in a very positive campaign. It was not a hostile, nasty campaign. He and McCain were good-natured and civil, and McCain refused to do the things that Trump has done repeatedly. And to then just say, because of your position on this, where you're actually a real liberal, screw you, you have no right. And I actually believe in letting the parties alternate in power. And I think that liberalism and conservatism complement each other in a liberal democracy. And both can be failures and need that failure to be corrected. But I don't want one party rule forever. I, don't, I, I really don't. And, and that the Republican could not entertain the possibility of cooperation with the Obama administration, I thought was was a, a terrible mistake. Don't you? Th- is, I mean, it, at least to me, it seems like the issue would be more less with the party leaders and more with just the outside incentive structure, whether that's the conservative media sphere or what have you. Because I mean, I, I actually think McConnell and Boehner would have been okay doing some type of deal, but they would have been hammered night and day by their by the talk radio and their constituents. I'm not sure in 2008, just on the key questions of like. The stimulus they would have been. I mean, look at what they've done with in a in a booming economy. Mm-hmm. They've added a trillion dollar stimulus to this economy in the last two years. So, if anything, <laughs> this guy was okay in the worst the... recession of the century, the second worst recession of the century, and they wouldn't give him an inch. Yeah, so, if anything, that proves they're okay with deficits. It <laughs> like does. If, if they're it in, does, if they're which okay proves that one. they were entirely disingenuous. And why would you be disingenuous? Yeah. I mean, and the fact that Trump has emerged out of this, and Trump's, Trump was obsessed with this person. I mean, obsessed with destroying. The only consistent thing in the Trump administration is his identifying things Obama did and seeking to destroy them. No positive vision at all. Just get that done. He, he doesn't actually, he actually, if you talk to him and you told him what Obamacare was and said it was a Republican care, uh, he would say, that's great. We've expanded. He'd be bragging. God, he, what he'd be saying, we've, 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 in, we've enrolled 100 million new people into, into, into Medicaid. He'd be, he'd be, if he'd, he'd done it, he'd be, he'd be lying forthrightly about it and blagging about it. So no, he's, Trump is a racist to, to his core. It's quite obvious. It's disgusts me. And the obsession with 
the success of it, the notion that this man was illegitimate somehow. You can disagree with him, but he's illegitimate because of his race, which is really the core of Trump's appeal to the base, is, is, is something that I think the GOP should be eternally ashamed by. A few weeks ago, you wrote about the how to be an anti-racist. Oh, God. And you talked about the left's endgame, le- which is, in your words... <laughs> Totalitarianism. What is this? How to be an anti? Is that, is that a book? It's, it's it's this new book that's all that's all the rage by a professor at AU, and you were but you wrote this piece about the totalitarian endgame, which was definitely shared around conservative circles big time. I mean, isn't it just so screwed up that the bin the binary? Now? Well, no. I know. Mean, Don't get me wrong. I mean, look, I mean, you know, that I've been fighting the left on cultural issues now for like 25 years. I actually, (laughs) things thrown at me, my life disrupted, all sorts of shit. And I do think that the social justice movement is totalitarian in its core beliefs. It's about coercion of people and it's it's racist uh, as well as being sexist and to some extent homophobic. Their heads would spin if they heard me say that. But I think it's actually true when you really absorb it. And uh, I think calling that out is very important, especially when major liberal institutions have been hijacked by it, such as the New York Times. And I think that stuff and the idea that this this person, this this guy who's a celebrated intellectual now with his entire he has an entire faculty around the anti-racism work, when it comes down to it, wants to have an extra constitutional uh, board that would vet whether anything is racist or anti-racist, be unaccountable deliberately, be staffed entirely by members of critical race studies uh, theorists or gender gender theorists, and would have the power of law to compel people on the basis that anything that any activity that produces slight discrepancy in racial representation than the demographic norm of that place is de facto racist. It's, it's, it, it, it's insane. I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of my mom or someone right now who might be listening and hearing all this and wondering who, if, if, if you've got all these issues with President Trump and of with a lot of the activism on the left, Excluding Obama, who is no longer allowed to run for president, are there any like where in the West are there positive political currents that you see that you like? I like Buttigieg, okay. to be honest with you, if I can pronounce it that way. <laughs> it's the only way I can. Think <laughs> of it. But, he, but, he, but wait, wait, you know that he worked at McKinsey, right? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm aware that he's white, <laughs> uh, and you know, I'm I know Boris Johnson a little bit, so. And I know he's a very flawed person, <laughs> but I think he's trying to address these questions in a way that will preserve the norms of liberal democracy and try and co-opt and address the questions that a lot of people who are out there and not represented in the media really want to see addressed. And so there's always hope. And the success of Buttigieg, if it happens, I doubt it, to be honest with you, would be a double whammy for me because it would mean a sane, reasoned uh, liberal mm-hmm. being in power, which I think I'm I'm okay with. You see, I'm okay with liberals holding power. I think the whole thing is about that. And also, I think it would completely uh, annihilate the gay left, which is also a long-term project of mine. <laughs> and they know it, which is why these incredible 
over-the-top attacks on him keep coming it, it from so gay people. It's so bizarre to be on Twitter now and just see the left just hate on Pete with a passion and intensity that they don't even seem to have for Trump. No. Andrew, don't, do you ever get mad that you take a lot of flack from the left, yet you basically, in many ways, and maybe you'll be modest and shrug off some of the the praise here, but in many ways, you hand-wrapped and delivered a lot of the, especially in the mainstream, the intellectual mainstream, the gay marriage issue. I mean, you put this on their doorstep, and now they're like, well, you know, you're not checking all of our boxes Well, to 100%. be honest, they hated it at the time. Really? Yes. Uh, they recognized it at the time as, as a heterosexist, patriarchal move, and targeted me for precisely those reasons. They were opposed to marriage equality for decades, on the grounds that marriage was an oppressive institution that you should abolish, not join equally the military. You should be abolished, not joined. In fact, it's criminal that there are gay people seeking service in the military. So, yes, and even like the, the major gay rights group, the big muckety-mucks money people across the street, a couple of blocks away, the human rights campaign, mm -hmm. would not mention marriage in their literature until uh, Bush was elected president. Wow. I spent the entire 90s fighting the left to get marriage. I was picketed. I mean, Virtue Normal was picketed by gay protesters. So, it's, again, your generation doesn't remember any of this. And there's an obvious, because when you're outside this, you don't quite see the nuances of this. But um, they were always against it. And they still are, basically. And that's also why they hate Pete. Yeah, because he's married and, and he's happy and he's also a success. See, and completely in the system. I I, mean, yeah. All the way up. I will actually defend nope. the system the way, the way Obama did. Uh, Andrew, as a big fan of yours, I'm I'm surprised you're as popular as you are because you are. I mean, it's like every time you kind of have people, yes, okay, we're with you there. You're like, okay, now, like, you, I'm conservative, I'm Catholic, okay, but I was on the forefront of the gay rights movement. I'm pro Obama. It's like every time someone's with you, I'm pro Boris. I am anti-Trump. You know, it's like it's unbelievable. I, well, it's I'm part not. Of the, the truth is, I'm not popular. I mean, I'm very unpopular. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and insofar as I'm popular, it's always on the download. No one will, uh, no one will actually publicly even compliment me to my face without saying, "I don't agree with everything you say." <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I know you're a pariah. Uh, the nature of sex and when ideologues come for the kids. Oh my gosh, those are two unbelievable oh, thank pieces. You. Two unbelievable pieces. But wow. those were chat opportunities for me to explore questions that I think were not being explored. We are way over time. You know that. Yes. Yeah. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. You're so welcome. It's been a huge fun. And that was Andrew Sullivan. Max Frost, what'd you think? You know, I thought it was fantastic. Really enjoyed speaking with him. Interesting guy. Great thinker. Love reading his stuff. It's always funny when there's someone who you genuinely have always wanted to meet and you actually meet them. That's always exciting. It's also always funny when we think that we run the podcast here. He comes in the studio. We say, oh, yeah, it's about 25, 30 minutes. And he says, no, that's not nearly long enough. And we end up talking to him for about an hour and a half. And then we pour the Jaeger and off we are. Off we are. Well, as always, guys, please leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast. We're introducing a new segment today called... So crazy, it just might work. And this segment is about proposing policy ideas that are off the wall, a little crazy. But when you really think about them, 
They actually might be good ideas. So we're going to go around. Each of us give one, and the other two will give a 0 to 10 star rating. I will kick it off. Bold. My policy proposal. It is bold. So is this policy. <laughs> is on Earth Week. It's Earth Week, right? Not Earth Month. All right, I already lost the audience, but here we go. Every citizen is required to plant 10 trees in Earth Week, and here's why. Because right now we're obviously having an emissions crisis. One of the best ways to counteract that is by planting trees. Right now, if we want people really civically engaged, the same way we were at every testing moment of our country's history, Revolutionary War, Civil War, Climate Crisis, we need to plant trees. Everybody's in charge of 10. Oh, you don't want to plant your trees? You're a wealthy family. You owe 60 trees because you have four kids and a spouse? Then ship them off. It'll cause a digital frenzy. The entire country will be so engaged, and we will counteract the emissions problem in this country. What do you guys think? One star. <laughs> One star. I'll, I'll give it eight only because I know Delibo Millennials who love Pokemon Go and that type of thing are going to go crazy for this digital tree. That is a great idea. It's I the mean, new ice Charizard challenge. could be anywhere. Okay, how in the world is Uncle Sam going to know if I throw 10 tree seeds all over the place? Leave 10 pine cones in the forest. It's like when you park a scooter around DC, you got to take a photo to validate where you parked it. You gotta <laughs> take a photo here's, here's my seed in, in the dirt. Look. It works for bird and lift, and that gets to my idea this week. A scooter stipend paired with a total prohibition on cars within city limits. Cars are <laughs> are an utter menace, especially in D.C. I, I assume all over cities all over. Uh. They cause the emissions Max Dewey is talking about. And they just, they're dangerous, they're loud, they're annoying. And most people driving around the city, they don't, they're not hauling lumber. They're, they're you know, driving themselves and maybe a briefcase, all things you can do on a scooter. So I'd say give everybody $100 a month to spend on bird, lift, whatever scooters you prefer. Save lives, save emissions, and cut down on this horrendous, hideous noise pollution that is making work impossible to complete in the city. Frost, you gave mine a one star? That's a negative one. Can I go negative? No. Banning... We're gonna I, we're gonna have the government the government paying us to go ride the biggest nuisance around the scooters. Cars are bad. Cars are the nuisance. Cars aren't gonna run you over on the sidewalk because you look at the. If there's hey, riddle me this one, Point Dexter. If there's no cars on the street, the scooters could be on the street. <laughs> hey, Juan said I'm actually gonna give it a four, and the reason I give him a four is because. I hate bicyclists. You didn't mention them. I also hate drivers. Yeah. So I think, you know, take a shot at them. Millennials feel too validated, so I'm not giving it a seven. They love scooters. I hate millennials, so I'm going to give it a four. Frost, what's your idea? Unlike you two new dealers over here who want to use the government to solve all our problems, I have an idea. Flat tax. So bold it might work. Let's incentivize people to create nice things. You two. Max Herman King Frost. Yep. That's all I'm going to say. What, 999? Yeah, what rate is your flat tax? Uh, I need to have my economist it's a look nine, at it. I'm going to give this a 2-2-2. Two, two, two. That's my <laughs> rating for this one. Yeah, I'll give this three stars. All right. Not, this is not crazy. This is not new. This is just tired of <laughs> the failed policies that led us to where we are today. All right. Privatize Amtrak. That's next. No, you don't want, you don't want idea. You save, save that next for week. A, a few weeks. All right. That's our show, guys. Thank you, as always, for listening. We'll be back soon. See you next time. If you don't subscribe, stop listening.